Thank you, ladies, for uh, singing that. Folks, good morning. Glad you're here. If you have your Bibles, why don't you grab them at this point in time and turn with me to the book of Ephesians. So turn to your New Testament towards the end of your Bibles. And if you are using the Pew Bible, which is in uh, the pew in front of you, you can turn there to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. And uh, we will be continuing our sermon series this morning called The Power of Praise with part five, The Practice of Praise. Ephesians chapter 5, it's there on page 949 if you want to follow along uh, with me. And as you're turning there, just want to uh, catch us up as to where we've been. In part one of uh, the power of praise, we saw that God's people always have been and always will be a people of praise. That is, the church is marked by singing. Then in parts two, three, and four, we saw three purposes of praise. We sing together to praise his name, to proclaim his truth, and to pray to his ear. Well, today in our sermon, entitled The Practice of Praise, we're going to discover from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 18 through 20, five traits, five characteristics, if you will, of congregational singing. Answering the question, what should mark, what characterizes our singing together as a church? Ephesians chapter 5, let's pray, and we'll dive right in. If you would pray with me, please. Father, it's been a good morning for us to be together to have sweet fellowship and conversation with one another. Father, to partake in singing unto you songs and hymns and spiritual songs, making melody in our hearts unto the Lord. And Father, we pray that our songs would be a sweet, sweet sound in your ears, that they would be sung uh, from a heart that loves you, that is grateful for all that you've done for us, first and foremost for sending your Son, Jesus Christ, to become one of us, to save us, to live perfectly in obedience to you where we could not, to pay the penalty that we deserved, dying on the cross, bearing our eternal wrath in our place for our sins, and rising triumphantly from the grave to give us forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with you, that that we can become new people and have the promise of eternal life both now and forever. There is much for us to sing about and so many reasons for us to sing to you. Father, this morning we pray as we turn to your word once again that we would be instructed as to how our singing together as a church is to be done, what should characterize it. And Father, may we increasingly fall in line with your design. We ask it in the powerful name of Jesus and God's people said together, amen, amen. Well, one's one man by the name of Franz Joseph Hayden. He was a 19th century composer from Austria. One night he was present at the Vienna Music Hall where his work entitled The Creation, based on Genesis 1 and 2, was being performed that particular night. He was weakened by age and the great composer had been confined to a wheelchair, and there he sat, listening to his composition. Well, as the majestic work moved along, the audience was caught up with tremendous emotion. And when the passage was read from Genesis 1, and there was light, was reached in the musical performance of the chorus, and the orchestra burst forth with such power that the crowd as the story goes, could no longer restrain its enthusiasm and emotion. The vast assembly 
spontaneously arose and erupted with applause. The composer, Hayden, struggled to stand on his feet, and he motioned to the assembly hall there for silence. And with his hand pointed towards heaven, he said these words, No, no, not from me, but from you comes all. And having having given glory and praise to God the Creator, he fell back into his chair exhausted, and praise erupted, not for him, but for the Creator God. You know, Hayden's words and his actions in this story, I think, are a great example of one of the chief characteristics of our corporate worship. That is, that our songs are to be sung to an audience of one. Our songs are to be sung to God alone for his glory alone. This morning, in the practice of praise, we will see five characteristics, five traits of congregational singing in the church. And for each of these traits, we'll have at least one, maybe two implications, applications for our practice today. So what I'd like to do now is read our text in its entirety, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 18 through 20. You can read along in your own Bible or on the screen behind me, and then we'll work our way through the text, noticing five characteristics of congregational singing, the practice of praise. Let's read now together God's holy and inspired word, starting in verse 18 of Ephesians chapter 5. Paul says this, Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Well, let's begin then in verse 18 where we see the first trait, the first characteristic of congregational singing. And in verse 18, we see this. Our singing is to be supernatural. The first thing that stands out as we take a look at this pivotal text on congregational singing, the first thing that jumps out is that our singing is to be spirit-led. It is indeed supernatural in origin. Let's take a look at verse 18 again. Paul says this, Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Now, of course, his point is not just that we would not allow alcohol to control us to the point of drunkenness, but of course, he's, he's using a, uh, an illustration, right? He's making a point. Positively, he says, we should allow the Spirit of God as Christians to control us in this manner. Of course, when we think about somebody being drunk, what, what do we say, right? They're driving under the what? Influence, right? We say when a person is filled with too much alcohol that they are under the influence, right? That's interesting language because they are allowing something outside of themselves to influence their words, their attitudes, and their actions. Paul uses this idea of drunkenness and influence, and he says, in in a similar manner, don't don't, don't let alcohol control you like that, but no, let the Holy Spirit of God so influence you so that your words and your thoughts and your actions are under His control, are under His influence. So at the outset of these verses, here's what we see. 
we see that singing to God, right? Our singing unto the Lord is the overflow of the Holy Spirit's work in my life and in your life if you are a Christian. Singing, then, is one sign, one indication that a person is Spirit-filled and Spirit-led. And the simple point is this. We need God's help to help us sing to God in a way that's acceptable to God. And so first and foremost, our singing unto the Lord is sourced in a supernatural origin. It's supernatural. Two implications that I see then. Number one, first, supernatural singing comes from a supernatural rebirth. So we have to begin at the beginning, right? See, the unbeliever, the unregenerate in heart, the the lost person cannot sing unto the Lord in a way that is acceptable to him because there is no love for the Lord in their hearts. So when you and I were not Christians, when I wasn't a Christian before um, I gave my life to the Lord at age 16, before that, I didn't want to sing to the Lord. I sat in church and I sang the songs because I had to, but there was no love in my heart for him. I sat and I sang and it was nothing. Because first and foremost, singing unto the Lord begins with the supernatural rebirth. That's why Jesus says this in John fourteen six. I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God, excuse me, in John 3, and no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. I really like what Marshall Seagal says on this point. He says, what makes a song a miracle is when it is offered with a redeemed and genuine heart of awe and praise to God. He says, it's not a song that comes from deep within, no, but far above. When God saved us, he returned our souls to sing. He didn't train us in musical theory or give us vocal lessons, but he opened our eyes and made us alive. And our mouths, though look and sound like the same old instrument, they have been radically and eternally transformed to declare the glory and goodness of our God. So supernatural singing begins then, friends, with a supernatural rebirth. And I want to ask you this morning, has that happened to you? Have you experienced the radical rebirth that comes through faith in Christ? Have you come to the Lord Jesus Christ, dead in your sins, dead to God, full of transgression, crying out for forgiveness of your sins, throwing yourself upon the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross to receive salvation, to receive forgiveness of sins, to receive rebirth through faith and trust in Christ alone? Because if you've not done that, that's where worship begins. It begins when we trust in Christ and our hearts are reborn and we want to sing to the Lord. So singing is supernatural first and foremost because our hearts have to be reborn. But there's another implication and it's this. Supernatural singing also comes from a supernatural source. So friends, the truth of the matter is is that even when we are born again, even once I gave my life to the Lord when I was 16 years old, I still needed the Holy Spirit living inside of me to empower me, and to propel me unto song. So brothers and sisters, let me ask, are we asking the Spirit of God to fill us and to come inside of us to help us to sing on Sunday mornings? Are we begging for His power to spark our emotions, to to sharpen our minds and enable our bodies to worship Him fully? 
Are we walking with the Holy Spirit as Christians day by day so that when we come to sing together, his power, his influence is flowing through our lives so that singing then is just the natural result of his work in our hearts. So the first thing that we see about congregational singing as Christians is that we can't do it on our own. Our hearts have to be remade and the Spirit of God must propel us then into worship. Not only that, but there's a second trait and it's found at the very beginning of verse 19. Our singing is not only to be supernatural, but it is to be instructive. It is to be instructive to one another. Notice the second trait of congregational singing. Paul says in verse 19 at the very beginning, he says, I'll, I'll read 18 into 19, do not be drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. And then he says these words in verse 19, speaking to one another. Speaking to one another. The, the, the idea behind this word speaking is that the church is to use our vocal cords in song to communicate something. We've talked about this before, right? When we sing, we sing unto the Lord, but we sing in a way that we are communicating truth to one another as we hear each other sing, right? We saw in Colossians chapter 3 that the content of our singing is to be the word of Christ. We had a whole sermon on this, so I'm not going to belabor this point. But I see one imminently practical implication. Our singing is to be instructive. It is to be not only a singing to one another, but Paul uses the word of communication. We are to speak to one another when we sing words. And here's our second implication. Singing, then, is to be prioritized over playing. Singing is to be preeminent over playing. In other words, congregational singing should emphasize singing more and instruments less. Worship is not to be a concert, right? But the composition of Christian communication, the culmination of Christian communication. Again, uh, Marshall Seagal nails it on the head. He says this, By no means is God against musical instruments. We've talked about that. Many of the Psalms were written to be accompanied with string instruments. But then he says this, But only one instrument sings. Only the voice brings words of praise. Explicit expressions of God's power, goodness, mercy, and wonder. Only a human voice declares the truth. A guitar, an organ, and a banjo all communicates something of the glory of God, but even the most beautiful note, he says, can't save anyone. We are desperate for a voice, a word, a lyric that announces good news, that reminds us of the truth that we all need. So what this means then is in our congregational singing that instrumentation is to be primarily used in the service of, in aid to, our voices, right? So our voices should be preeminent and the music should be supportive. I have been to countless worship services in my life, both growing up in my own churches in my experience, both in college and in Dallas when I was at seminary, countless churches, may not countless, many churches, lots of churches, uh, numerous um, worship services. And in particular, when I was in seminary in Dallas, I, I recall going to, to many church services, not of my own church, but just for various things. And it was more of a concert than it was congregational singing. Seemingly, every song was 15 minutes long, <laughs> and uh, each instrument got a solo, right? Um, and they, it was great. It was quality. 
but you kind of felt like you were listening to musicians play more than listening to Christians coming together to sing. I remember uh, Shelley telling me of a, a very famous megachurch that she uh, went to one Sunday morning, and she described the church service. She said, she said Trey, when the musicians came out uh, to sing and to lead in worship, they started playing, and I, st- I stood up in my chair because that's what I'm used to doing, and then I-, I quickly realized that everybody else was sitting down. And so I sat down, right? And, and the, the songs began to play and the words were on the screen and I began to sing because that's what we do. As Christians, we sing. And then I realized that nobody was singing. She said it was a concert. Nobody sang. Friends, this is a tragedy because in our singing, not only is it supernaturally based, but it is supposed to be our voices instructing and teaching the word of God through the song to one another. So, our singing is supernatural. It's instructive, but take a look at the tail end of verse 19. Our singing is also, number three, to be corporate. Our singing is to be corporate. Paul says, speaking to what? One another. Paul says, speaking to one another with hymns and psalms and songs from the, from the Spirit. See, a, a very simple, a very simple but significant observation here. Paul says that when we sing, we are to speak, but we are to do it to one another, right? It is to be a corporate experience when we sing together, which is why Paul says we speak to one another. So not only then are we to sing together, but all of us are to sing together. In other words, each member of the body, each member of the congregation is to sing, not just those who are gifted or those who enjoy it or those who carry a decent tune, but even those of us who feel, well, we've been told we can't sing, so we're kind of ashamed to sing out loud. Those of us who don't feel like we connect through song, who don't get singing. See, singing is a ministry that God has given to all of the people of God. Dr. Ronald Allen, in his book, Worship, Recovering the Missing Jewel, he says this. He says, when a non-singer becomes a Christian, he or she becomes a singer. Not all are blessed with finely tuned ear and a well-modulated voice. So the sound may not be superb. It may even be out of tune and off-key. And then he says these, I think, important words. Remember, worship is a state of heart. Musical sound is a state of art. He says, let's not confuse the two. So two implications here. Our singing is a corporate event. It's for all of us. So everyone is to sing. So let me ask you, do you sing with us on Sunday mornings? Do you raise your voice unto the Lord in song? And if not, I want you to begin to think about why not. Friends, we need to hear each other's voices on Sunday mornings. We need to hear each other's voices echoing throughout this building because we are to speak to one another when we sing, right? We are to teach and admonish one another with our voices, Paul tells us. So when we sit here and we've had a really difficult week and we sit in the pew and our hearts are aching, from some sort of loss. And and when we're sitting in the pews and our minds are racked with worry, and when our spirits are deflated from disappointment, friends, 
in those moments and in many others, we need to hear the sounds of all of our voices rising around us, singing, singing the words like, like this, when peace like a river attendeth my way, and when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Friends, we need to hear each other's voices telling us that and so many other things. Bob Coughlin, singer, songwriter, he hits it on the head when he says, being together, excuse me, not only is, not only then is singing a corporate event, it's, we're all to sing, but there's another implication, and then we'll get to the Coughlin quote. Singing then not only is for everyone, but it reflects and it deepens our unity. Have you ever thought about the effect that could come about from the very fact that not only do we sit here together, but that we actually raise our voices together, singing the same song at the same time. Not only do we sing together, but our singing together actually is meant to make us stronger together, right? It's meant to unify us. And here's what Bob Coughlin said on that point. He said, being together in the same room is one way we can express our unity. But he says this, but singing together draws attention to that bond as we sing the same words at the same time. So singing binds us together. It's interesting, there's scientific research where scientists are figuring this out, that when a group of people actually lift their voices in song together, that something happens in our brains. And there's a binding through song. It's incredible. God knew what he was doing when he instructed us to sing together, did he not? So our singing then is supernaturally based, right? From a born-again heart, enabled by the Spirit of God. It's to be instructive. It's to be corporate. And number four, it is to be emotional. It is to be emotional. Let's take a look then at the tail end of verse 19. Paul says this, Sing and make music, what are the words? From your what? Heart. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord. So here, very clearly, we aren't just to sing with our heads. Not only are we supposed to sing biblical truths, but we are to sing them from our hearts. And I take that to mean both willfully, volitionally, and with our emotions. That's the language the Bible uses to describe our heart. It's what we will to do, and it's what we want to do, and it's what we feel like doing. That's the language of the heart. And here Paul says, listen, when you sing, it's normative to sing from the heart. Again, Coughlin is helpful. He says, he says this, and these words have stuck in my mind all week, so I hope they'll stick in yours too. He says, emotionless singing is an oxymoron. Did you catch that? Emotionless singing is an oxymoron. In other words, you can't do it. He says, God gave us singing to combine objective truth with thankfulness in our hearts, the emotion. Doctrine with devotion. Intellect with emotion. So I want to show about a two or three minute clip then of Dr. Coughlin illustrating this particular point using the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. Let's watch this together. Let's draw out some inferences from the fact that singing can help us engage emotionally with words. We need a broader range 
a broader emotional range in the songs we sing. Most of us. We need a broad emotional range in our songs. Reverence, awe, repentance, grief, as well as joy, celebration, freedom, and confidence. The holiness of God cannot be adequately expressed in a two-minute up-tempo pop song. The jubilant triumph of Christ's victory over sin can't be fully communicated in a slow a cappella hymn. There are traditions of song throughout history that are very different. Hymn writers, Puritans, psalm singers, pietists, charismatics, modern worship songs. Why do we need to pit them against one another? Why can't we learn whatever we can from each tradition so that it helps us to engage emotionally with the words we sing? We need a broad range, a broad emotional range in the music we use. So, music then, regardless of what we sing, is to be an emotional experience. And that leads us to a a third, fourth implication. Singing then should be an emotional event. Now, I don't know about you, but there are many Sundays when I sit uh, in the pew and the song is starting to play. And I don't feel sometimes. My my emotions aren't prepared. I'm not not emotionally connecting with the song. I'm not, not always there. I'm not always where I want to be. I think that's common. Of course, we're not always moved in the same way when we sing, to the same degree when we sing. We, at times, may be numb emotionally. And in those moments, I and we, we cry out for faith and for mercy and for grace to feel something as we sing, rather than simply to grit our teeth and to kind of make it through it, accepting that as just normative. That's why I love what John Piper says on this point. He says, let me mention here, that this does not mean that worship is authentic only when you feel red hot for God. It can mean that when you are not red hot, your, heart's, your heart feels a longing for the passion that you once knew or want to know more of. He says that longing offered to God is also worship. It can mean remorse that even the longing is gone and you scarcely are able to feel anything but sadness that you don't feel what you should. He says that remorse offered to God is also worship. So these are most encouraging words. He says don't have an all or nothing attitude about worship. The heart can be real even if it is not as inflamed with zeal as it ought to be. He says "which, which it never is in this life. So friends, our singing and our songs are to be filled with emotion unto the Lord in a broad range of ways. Finally, our singing is supernatural, it's instructive, it's, it's a corporate experience, it's meant, meant to, it's meant to be emotive. And finally, our singing is to be to God through Jesus Christ. Notice verse 20. Paul says, always giving thanks to whom? To God the Father for everything. In whose name do we do that? In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So as we saw last week, our singing is also an occasion for or can be seen as a thankful prayer, right? Singing and prayer is often synonymous and we see it here again. 
But we also see this important point about singing. Our, our prayer songs of thanksgiving, as Paul talks about, they are directed to God the Father. So this is what this means. God is not only the subject of our worship, we sing about him. He is the object of our worship, right? We sing to him. And when we sing on Sunday mornings together, friends, do, you, do, we, do we recognize? It was, it was in the, the song that the ladies sang, I love you, Lord, right? And I lift my voice to worship you. And then it goes something like, Take joy, my king, in what you hear. May it be a sweet, sweet sound in your ear. Friends, do we, do we, do we recognize, do we, do we recognize that when we sing, that we sing in the very presence of the eternal God, with a view to his hearing and his seeing our singing, with a heartfelt desire that he receive it, that he approve of it, and that he delight in it. Because when we sing, we sing to one another, we sing to the Lord, and he's there. One final implication. We should include then, if not prioritize, songs that speak to God rather than about God. Now, as we have seen in the past, and we reiterate this, one purpose of singing is to proclaim God's truth. So songs that are doctrinally rich, that speak about God. That's good and appropriate, and we should have those. But fundamentally, our songs are offered unto the Lord. So whether we sing songs to God, like, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, right? We're singing to the Lord. Or whether we sing songs about the Lord, uh, the Martin Luther hymn, A mighty fortress is our God. We're singing about him. Whether we sing to him or about him, our worship is to be God-centered. But I think songs like, like the one maybe the girls sang, right? I love you, Lord. I lift my voice to worship you when we're singing unto the Lord, right? I think it enhances our ability to do this, to sing and to make music in our hearts unto the Lord. So we sing unto the Lord, but how do we sing to him? How do we have access into his presence? Our singing is to be to God, but it's to be through Christ. Notice, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we pray and we sing to God the Father through the work of the Son. Just as we only come into a relationship with God the Father through the work of the Son. Jesus in John fourteen six, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes, what? To the Father. That's what Paul says here. No one comes to the Father, Jesus said, except what? Through me, Right? So we sing to God, and we're only able to do it through Christ, which then gives us a nice segue to close our time together as we celebrate and remember this truth through the ordinance of communion, where we partake in bread, and it reminds us that the body of Jesus Christ was broken for us. And we partake in the juice. It reminds us that his blood was spilt, poured out for us. Paul tells us this in 1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Whenever you drink it, 
in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So friends, here's how we're going to close. If you've personally trusted in Jesus Christ this morning as your Savior, and you've begun to follow him as your Lord, then I invite you to partake in the table. Before, we'll have a, a moment of prayer, of confession, of reflection, and then we'll partake in the elements as you are prepared. But friends, if you're sitting here today, and you know that you have not come into a relationship with God the Father through faith in Jesus Christ, you have not had a born-again experience, then we ask that you refrain. If you know that then that you are a Christian, please partake and remember in worship. When you're done, you're free to go. Let's take a moment now in prayer and reflection, confession and repentance, and thanksgiving unto the Lord, and then come to the table when you're prepared. So let's pray together. Father, we pray.